1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16. At one point early in Julius Caesar's political career, feelings ran so high against him that he thought it best to leave Rome for a period of time. And so he sailed for the Aegean island of Rhodes, but on the way, his ship was attacked by pirates and Caesar was captured. The pirates demanded a ransom of 12,000 gold pieces and Caesar's staff was sent away to arrange the payment of the ransom. In the meantime, Caesar spent almost 40 days with his captors, jokingly telling the pirates on several occasions that he would someday capture and crucify them down to a man. Well, the kidnappers were greatly amused by his threats. However, when the ransom was paid and Caesar was set free, the first thing he did was gather a fleet and pursue the pirates, capturing them and crucifying them to a man. Sometimes, if you're like those pirates when you're holding Caesar captive, your current understanding of reality your current view of who's on top and who has the power and who's going to win turns out in the end, tragically, not to be at all what you think it is. So imagine the Apostle Paul a number of decades later walking the cities of Caesar's Roman Empire, walking the city of Corinth, for example. Caesar, the Caesars, have clearly won. Caesar is clearly on top, along with his elite cronies, the top ruling class of Rome. And there's proof of it everywhere. Great villas and palaces made of stone with rich tapestries and ornaments. Monuments, statues, inscriptions. They testify to Caesar's glory. The, 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 they laud his accomplishments. They proclaim the greatness of the Roman Empire. Roman might, Roman power is everywhere. It's seemingly impregnable and unshakable. Anyone who gets out of line receives a swift and brutal correction, and this too is there for all to see. The poor souls fed to the lions in the Colosseum for Rome's entertainment. The crucifixions. Again, those who refuse to bow to Roman power now strung up naked, humiliated, bleeding and suffering the most cruel death on some public highway somewhere for all to see to show the world Rome held all power. And yet the Apostle Paul has the audacity to proclaim in the midst of all this that it's not really true, that it's not really real, that it's a farce and that God has judged this might and power and found it pitiful and foolish and wanting and that God is in the process of overthrowing it through someone named Jesus. One whom God sent and whom the Romans already crucified but whom God claim, or Paul claims God has raised from the dead. Thus, God saying, yes, that's the way things should be. Not the power of Rome, not the way of Caesar, but the way of getting crucified by Rome. The way of losing, the way of giving up, the way of weakness, the way of servanthood, the way of love for others. That's real wisdom. 
And that's what is winning more and more and what is going to, God will make sure, win in the end. Verse 6 of our passage today. We do not, however, speak a message of wisdom. Or sorry, we do, however. Had that backwards. <laughs> we do, however, Paul says, as he's writing to the Corinthians, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul has just spent the first chapter of his letter, we looked at the last couple Sundays, to the Corinthians. They were in love with wisdom and with intellectual knowledge and with academic enlightenment. And Paul has been arguing with them that in the face of that, God is doing something foolish, something the smart ones would never understand or accept. Paul reminded them of Christ's crucifixion and of the foolishness of the cross. And he rebuked them and he urged them to humble themselves and to abandon their wisdom and to accept a foolish message and a foolish God. But now Paul adds, well, actually, God isn't really a fool. <laughs> no, actually, God is wise, but it's a different kind of wisdom. And in fact, it's the real wisdom. But it's a wisdom so counter to the way of the world that the world in its wisdom can't recognize it as anything but foolishness. You see, the problem isn't with God. The problem is with the world's warped, upside-down view of wisdom. We think it's wise to get ahead, to be on top, to win, to overcome, to succeed, to be better than. But God says, no. The true wisdom is found in laying down your life in love for your friends and even for your enemies. But this is so foolish to the world that the world completely rejects it. Imagine a globe. Because globe making happened mainly and first in the northern hemisphere, we in the west and in the north put ourselves on top, right side up, right? Where are we? There we are. But if you go down under to Australia, um, it's upside down down there, right, uh, on the map. But if you go down there, you actually go to Australia, Nancy, the Martins, you've been there, right? You're not upside down, right? You're right side up when you get down under. <laughs> and, and so you realize that the earth is actually hanging there in space in, in the universe that's vast open space. I know it's much more than that, phys physicians tell us, but we can't really understand all that. So uh, up and down are, are purely relative in terms of the universe. Why, why isn't Australia up? And, and why aren't we down? It's, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Well, that would be true if the universe was just vast emptiness. But what if there's a God who's looking at the world? What if there's a God who's looking at us? 
and saying, I made this world, and yes, this side is actually up, or maybe this side is actually up. Well, whichever God would choose, right? Well, Paul says that this is something like what happened with the coming of Jesus Christ. The whole world says that one way is up, that the goal is to get ahead, to hold on to power, to have the influence, to make things our way, and those who succeed are the winners, and those who fail are the losers, and that's wisdom. But there's a God who says, no, <laughs> that's actually foolishness. You've actually got the world upside down. Real wisdom is found in just the opposite. It's found in giving your life in sacrificial love. It's found in laying down power and laying down your rights in love. And since you'll never believe that unless I model it to, for you, God says, unless I go first and demonstrate it, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save the world through getting crucified by the Romans on a cross. And then I'm going to teach everyone who will believe in me and in my way of salvation to live that way with each other and for others. Well, let me ask you, who's going to believe that? The world doesn't believe it. The church in Corinth wasn't believing it. That's why Paul writes this letter. And the church today, at least in America, by and large, doesn't believe it either. Oh, we believe that Jesus died to take our sins so we can be forgiven, but we won't believe that the way of the cross, the way of servanthood, the way of sacrificial love is actually the way that God does and gets things done, the way that God brings his salvation to the world. And so we find it hard to believe that it's the way that we're meant to live our lives. And boy, I tell you, I struggle to believe it. I struggle to remember it on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and Paul acknowledges this. He says it, it's a mystery. It, it's always been true, but for so long it's been hidden in God's heart and mind. It's been hidden to us, at least, us humans. Verse 7, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And then verse 8 again, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived... The things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived, Paul's talking about the way of the cross here. The things God has prepared for us who love him, Jesus' death on a cross for us, these are the things God has now revealed to us by his spirit, Paul is saying. Paul's saying there's, there's only one way that we know that we've had the world upside down. That, that we've had it backwards. We don't know it through human wisdom or understanding. 
We don't know it because the smartest people have figured it out. Because guess what? Silicon Valley hasn't figured it out. <laughs> Washington, D.C. hasn't figured it out. Wall Street and Hollywood haven't figured it out. And we don't know it because it's common sense either. The average everyday person hasn't figured it out. No, the only way we know it is because God has revealed it to us by his spirit. God showed us by his spirit the truth of God's wisdom, a wisdom for ages hidden, but now made known through the cross of Jesus Christ. This reminds me of the movie The Matrix. Probably a lot of you have seen it, right? It's a classic. A race of, for those of you who haven't, of machines have, have taken over and they have captured all the humans and locked them in little womb-like pods and turned them into human batteries. And the machines are using the humans, harvesting their life energy to power their civilization. And to keep the humans subdued and to anesthetize them, the machines have hijacked the humans' minds and they're continually feeding into their minds happy thoughts of a happy life. And of reality, a virtual reality called the matrix. And so the humans all think they're living normal lives in a wonderful world when actually they're captives being exploited. And the plot that drives the movie is, how does anyone wake up to see what reality really is so they can do something about it? And that reality, how does anyone wake up to see that, that reality is far different from what everyone thinks it is, living in the matrix? And that's Paul's challenge as a, as a representative of Jesus Christ. How does he get anyone to see that God's wisdom and God's reality are in many ways opposite to the world's wisdom and the world's reality? And right now in his letter, how does he get the Corinthians to see it? And how does he get you and me to see it? How does Paul get us to see that Caesar and the Caesars ever since, with all of their victory and their power and their pomp and their glory, that they're passing away? And that God has judged all of this as foolishness and as failure on the part of the human race. And that the way God is actually remaking the world to work is through someone who got arrested and tortured and shamefully executed. Um, and a man who let it happen to him because he loved the ones doing it to him. And that if we all start living a lot more like that, we'll be living wisely. We'll be living in line with reality and we'll finally know the mind and the heart of God. Do you realize that that's the heart of God? Paul says again, nobody figures this out because they're smart. The only way we know it is because it's been revealed to us. The heart of God has been revealed to us by God's Spirit. That's what verses 10 to 12 are about. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? 
right? Who knows you best? Who knows exactly what you're thinking? Well, you do. Your own inner spirit does. Of course, there's subconscious things you don't know, but, but you know what you're thinking. You know what's inside of you. And likewise, God's spirit knows better than anyone else what God's thinking. Verse 11, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And then verse 12, amazingly, God's Spirit has come among us to teach us and to share with us what God's thinking, what God, how God sees things, what's on God's heart. Do you know, or, or do you want to know how God thinks about things? What's going on in God? Get His Spirit. Verse 12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So that we may understand what God gave us on the cross and what Jesus did for us on the cross. And now Paul explains that that's what he's been preaching and teaching and proclaiming. It's what he and what others who have the Spirit have learned about God and about God's ways and God's mind from the Spirit. Verse 13, this is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. The way of the cross, the idea of a crucified Savior, a crucified King, it's foolishness. It makes no sense unless you have the Spirit. So here's Paul's point, and it's a great reminder for us on Pentecost Sunday, which is what today is. Do you want to know what makes someone really spiritual? Do you want to know what, what the, the greatest mark is of someone filled with the Spirit? It's not so much that they speak in tongues, though that might happen and be a wonderful gift. It's not so much that they have incredible, warm experiences of God's love and presence, though that might be happen and be truly wonderful as well. It's not so much that they're passionate for God and excited about God, though that might happen, and I'd love to have 200 people like that in this church. <laughs> all of that might be true of the Spirit. All of it is, can be true, and it's all wonderful. But the most important thing is this that the one who really has the Spirit understands the way of the cross, the way of servanthood, the way of self-sacrificial love. They understand that the way of the world, the way of advancement, the way of seeking power and success is foolishness to God. But they understand that the way of being a servant and putting others before themselves and loving others well is the true wisdom of God. You see, the cross is the key to everything. And the only way to see it is by the Spirit. Now remember, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and, and just read ahead in the letter, the Corinthians claim to be very spiritual. 
They speak in tongues, they prophesy, they have had amazing experiences with God, and they're really proud of all this. In fact, they're arrogant about it. And they think that they're better than Paul, and they're arguing among themselves about who's the best among themselves. And Paul says, I'm glad that the Spirit is giving you all these experiences, but you're missing the point of the Spirit completely. Because the point, the, the Spirit points to Jesus, and the Spirit points to the cross. And the Spirit teaches us that the way of the world is upside down. And the way to live is not how you're living, Corinthians. No, the real way to live is the way of love, the way of humility, the way of servanthood, the way of considering others better than yourselves, the way of the cross. And if you understood that, you wouldn't be fighting with each other. And if you understood that, you wouldn't be against me, Paul tells them. So question, do we understand it? Again, I can tell you, for, for me personally, it's so easy to forget. Because the world's telling me just the opposite every day. And my own flesh is pushing against it too. And so I need again and again to be reminded of it by reading this book that the Spirit inspired to, to make this known to us. And by letting the Holy Spirit write it ever deeper in my heart. Well, then Paul concludes with, with a word that's actually very bold and confident. But it's not because Paul is arrogant, though he can sometimes be accused of that. But rather because Paul is confident in the cross. And so Paul says, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul is saying that like the other apostles, I, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Because the Spirit has taught us these things. The Spirit has taught us the way of the cross and the way of servanthood and the way of sacrificial love. And so Paul says, that's the way I live. I'm not trying to get rich. I'm not trying to accumulate power. I'm not trying to throw my weight around for my own agenda or my own purposes. No, I'm only trying to serve you so you will grow spiritually and so you'll follow Jesus better. And I'm giving my life away for that, for people like you. And so I'm in a position, he says to the Corinthians, to judge your attitudes and your behavior, but you Corinthians are not in a position to judge me. <laughs> because you're just thinking like the world thinks. You don't have the mind of God because the cross is nowhere near the center of your thinking. And so that's a lesson for us if we want to be a Christ-centered church. We have to celebrate and lift up and listen to and emulate those among us who are humble, who are servant-hearted, who are loving, who best exemplify and live out the way of the cross. Those who have the mind of Christ, those are the ones we should look up to. Let me close with a story about this. I may have told some of you this story before. 
When I was in my 20s, I worked for a year at a Bible school in, in Budapest. And several of the male students lived in a group house together. There were maybe five guys in the house. And one of the students was particularly spiritual. Around the school, people recognized and respected him as a very godly man. He was prayerful. His roommate said he would, he would sit on his bed and he would pray for hours. He would also have spiritual experiences. He said he saw visions of God sometimes. He would hear God speaking to him. And just to look at the guy's face, it showed he was joyful. He was peaceful. He had a deep faith. He was passionate about God. He was wise and deep. And everyone looked up to him except actually the guys who lived with him. You want to know why? Because when it was his turn to do the dishes, he said, no, he didn't do that kind of work. And when it was his turn to do the chores around the house, to vacuum or to take out the garbage, he wouldn't do it. He'd leave messes around the house. He would never clean them up, but he expected others to clean up after him. After all, he was busy praying. He claimed to be spiritual. But he expected others to serve him. And he never, rarely, in turn, served them. He would have fit right in, maybe, in, in a place like Corinth, in the church there. They had a bunch of those kind of spiritual people. But boy, he does not fit the Apostle Paul's picture, or the New Testament's picture, of what it means to be spiritual. Just read chapter 2. He doesn't fit it. Because Paul's picture is based on the cross of Christ. On the way of servanthood. On the way of self-giving love. On laying down privilege to love and serve others. And so may that be our picture as well here at CBC. Let's pray. God, your cross hangs right in front of us over my head. And we're so grateful for what it means that you loved us enough to give everything up to make yourself nothing, servant, and to come down to save us and to forgive our sins. And yet Paul also reminds us that it means that then he says, imitate me, be like Jesus, take up your cross and follow me for the greatest command is to love God and to love your neighbor. And I pray that you would keep the cross before us and that you would work it deeper and deeper into our hearts, even right now as we come to this table and remember your cross together. Amen.